This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Episode 5, Not So Fast. Okay, I'm a doctor, so I can't admit when I'm not great at something, but I have a confession. Okay, I hope I don't lose my academic position after this confession, but I don't do a fast on every pediatric trauma, and I'm really not that great at it anyways, and I'm not even convinced that it makes that big of a difference on the vast majority of my kids with trauma. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Sarah? I think that's fair. For those of you who don't know, FAST stands for Focused Assessment with Sonography for Trauma. It's a point of care test that basically involves imaging four quadrants, the right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, suprapubic and subxiphoid views, looking for free fluid. Now, I did an ultrasound fellowship, so I'm a bit biased, but mm-hmm. the FAST is part of the ATLS algorithm. We use it in adults. It is standard of care in adults, and I would say probably most, if not every trauma center uses this routinely in adults. But in kids, I think it's kind of a different ballgame. So we know that in adults, the sensitivity, the fast is really good. It's like 80%. Well, I shouldn't say really good. It's decent, 80%. Specificity is awesome, like close to 96 to 98%. But in peds, the sensitivity is a little bit lower and the specificity is still pretty high. But I think peds is kind of a different ballgame. We don't see as many kids coming in with blunt torso or abdominal trauma And the ones we do see are often clinically stable. So it's hard to demonstrate the utility of the FAST exam. And we'll talk about that more in the paper we're discussing today. But the research does show that it may be helpful in combination with a good physical exam and clinical assessment in terms of determining which patients actually need to go to the OR. So with such high specificity, up to 96, 97%, if you do see an abnormality, it can be super helpful. And you and I were both on a case together, actually, where we did find it really helpful. Do you remember? Oh, my God. I think about it all the time. (laughs) So I actually caught up with Nathan Vandenberg, who was the second year resident on the case, grabbed him in the ER. So you hear a little bit of background noise. But I asked him to tell us his recollection of this case. So this case is actually a case I had relatively early in my second year. I think it was actually my second month as a second year resident, so kind of brand new to the senior resident role uh, over in our pediatric emergency department. The report we got coming in was of a 911 trauma, which is our highest coded trauma here at UC Davis, coming by air from the scene, which here could be kind of anything. You never know what you're going to get when you get that call. So, you know, we get over to the recess room, start to prep things, get things ready to go. And of course, as we're doing that, the story always evolves. Um, kind of the story that we got was of an elementary school aged kid who was in a rollover MVC. The patient was a restrained passenger who was intubated on the scene for a low GCS and was coming kind of by air. So, you know, we, we knew we likely had an airway that we needed to confirm and we were otherwise ready. The trauma team was there kind of ready to go. As the patient was coming, the case evolved that the patient was now receiving push-dose epinephrine for low blood pressure and was started on a uh, norepinephrine drip, was not under CPR, but at this point we knew the patient was critically ill. So the level of intensity went from, you know, standard for a 911 trauma to kind of all hands on deck, thinking that this patient is you know, in, in relatively bad shape. 
So we're totally ready to go. I'm there as a brand new R2, terrified, but kind of ready to go. We had our team assembled, the trauma team. We had our ultrasound kind of on standby, ready for our fast after our primary survey. So the patient arrives, the patient is intubated. We get the report, kind of hear everything that happened, do our primary survey, which, so we confirm the tube placement. We have bilateral breast sounds and, and good distal pulses. The patient is on a levofed drip. And then no real signs of external trauma on this patient, which is surprising given the story that we had. So after completing our primary survey, we proceed to do a fast exam as she's still hypotensive on a, a norepinephrine drip. Our intern, who is in her second month of residency, is tasked to do the fast exam with some guidance from one of our senior faculty who had come, who had come over to help. And so uh, our intern gets a view of the right upper quadrant and kind of glances over that and then goes to her subxiphoid view. And when she looks at the subxiphoid view, all she says is, this doesn't look right to me. And so one of our senior faculty is there agrees. And I look over and I agree. You know, what we're seeing is, is a large um, kind of pericardial effusion. It was almost so large that we thought there was something kind of very, very odd going on. Kind of a, a fast exam you're not going to miss is kind of how big that pericardial effusion was. So we, of course, show it to our trauma surgeon who's there. And it kind of changes, again, changes the acuity of things from, you know, a, we initially had a sick patient to a very sick patient to a patient who's, you know, very critically ill and going to the OR right now. I think Nathan summed that up really well. I remember being at the airway at the head of the bed and looking over and trying to see the screen and matching the vital signs in the exam I was seeing and thinking, her belly's not really distended. She's not like putting blood into her belly. Her pelvis is stable. I don't see a ton of external trauma. And yet her tachycardia is really significant and her hypotension is really significant. There wasn't anything specific that I thought this was like neurotrauma either. It just was a really strange picture. It didn't make sense. And when that intern was using the ultrasound and Jim was trying to help her out and I looked over and I was like, that looks really weird, but I don't, it looks so weird that I don't recognize it at all. And thank goodness, Jim ran over to urgent care to grab you and you came over as our expert to help us out. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because I agree with you looking at her. She didn't look like she should be that sick. And I mean, how many kids do you see coming in on a leave a fed drip? That seemed super bizarre. But when I threw the probe on there, the pericardial effusion was really hemopericardium is what it was. And it was massive. And you could actually see some coagulating blood in there or starting to coagulate um, and definitely signs of tamponade. And that totally explains her hypotension. So I went on to do the rest of the fast and looked in her belly. And she actually had a small amount of free fluid in all four quadrants on her abdominal fast as well. And so our trauma surgeon, who was right there at bedside, obviously was watching all of this, and they packaged her up right away and took her straight to the OR. The chest x-ray was really interesting too, right, Sarah? It was, actually, because the chest x-ray, although looking back, I can definitely see it, but at the time, the initial read was actually normal. So the FAST was really helpful in that sense as well. Yeah, because if we had just gone with the chest x-ray, I'm not sure that we would have been on the same pathway. And I definitely think it would have led to a delay in getting this patient to the OR if we hadn't had the ultrasound. Yeah, me too. But in the OR, they actually found a left atrial appendage rupture, which they were able to repair. And when they did the X-lap, there was actually no, um, no blood in the belly. It was all simple fluid, probably as a result of that tamponade. So closed everything up 
and the patient went up to the ICU and recovered really, really well. Was discharged, and a week later at their follow-up appointment, this patient was still doing amazingly well. This is why I love kids, man. They can come back from the scariest spots and then dance their way out of the hospital. They really are so resilient. I love it. So, okay, Sarah, this case and some of the stuff that you're saying convinced me that I need to work on my fast skills a little bit more. But let's take a look at this JAMA article um, that Nate Cooperman and Jim Holmes did and talk about pediatric fast a little bit more. And to help us with this today, we're bringing in Mike Schick who is also an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, one of our ultrasound faculty. And you can find him online at sonostuff.com. He's got some great instructional videos on ultrasound as well. So glad to have Mike here. Maybe I should go on there and look up the pediatric fast. <laughs> our next interview, we actually recorded at our faculty retreat. These guys are so busy producing evidence that this is the only time we could peg him down. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. I just wanted to introduce everybody. Jim Holmes has joined us. He is a professor of emergency medicine, the vice chair for research in our department, and also an extraordinary bird watcher. Oh, thank you very much <laughs> for the bird watching part. Yes, yes. yes. And uh, Nate Cooperman has also joined us again. He's the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis. He is a Peds Emergency Medicine attending, and he's the founding chair of the steering committee of PCARN and one of its PIs. Thanks so much for joining us again, Nate. It's great to be here. So today we're going to talk a little bit about one of your recent publications. Jim, can you tell us what was the title and talk to us a little bit about the methods and the results? So we did a study on uh, the effect of abdominal ultrasound on clinical care outcomes and resource use in children with blunt torso trauma. And it was a randomized controlled trial of 925 patients that got randomized either to standard care or standard care with the FAST exam done during the initial evaluation. And we looked at outcomes, primarily abdominal CT rate in the emergency department, but we also looked at the length of stay that the patient had in the emergency department, the rate of missed intra-abdominal injuries, and the charges during the hospitalization for the patient. And surprisingly, we found no difference in any of those outcomes on whether or not you did the FAST exam or not. So, Jim, I was surprised by these results because, I mean, the FAST exam, it's like part of ATLS. It's made into the, you know, the adult side. It's the standard of care. We always do this in all our trauma patients. We know that it makes a difference. So, I don't know, do you have any uh, explanation on why we have these results? Yeah, we've thought long and hard because, like I say, it kind of surprised us and disappointed us to a little bit. That, that we didn't see a difference, but one of the things that we actually did see was it decreased clinician suspicion. So we asked the clinicians before they did the ultrasound what their suspicion was of intra-abdominal injury, and then we asked them again after they did the FAST exam what was their clinician suspicion. And interestingly, there is a substantial decrease in clinician suspicion of intra-abdominal injury after doing the FAST exam, but that just didn't translate into decreased CT rate. And so we think there's some disconnect between basically the translation of getting the fast results that are negative and then not ordering that CT scan. Okay. So you're saying they were doing the fast exam. They were confident that there was no injury and the CT scans were still being ordered? Correct. In the fast group, we had about 170 patients who had a negative fast exam and the clinician said there was a less than 1% risk 
of intra-abdominal injury, but unfortunately about 28% of those patients still went on to CT scan. And in all of those patients, the CT was normal. Let me add just one thing. So I agree with uh, Jim that, you know, for me, there's one of two possible explanations. One is the explanation that Jim gave is that this is a problem in translation, that people weren't confident enough to translate those negative FAST results into not ordering the CT scan. The other explanation may be that clinicians are aware that the sensitivity of the FAST for hemoperitoneum in the pediatric trauma patient is not that high. So they might have some pre-existing notion that they just don't trust the FAST exam yet. And as a consequence, they uh, went ahead and got the CT scan. And just going to say there's two previous studies in pediatric trauma patients that also found that the FAST didn't affect care, right, Jim? The scaping. I was taught that, yeah, it's not as good of a study in the pediatric population. So I can imagine some clinicians saying, I really don't want to miss an injury in this kid. Yeah, it's it's a good point that Nate brings up. And when you um, look at the prior literature, we published a systematic uh, review and, and meta-analysis on kind of the initial uh, work on the sensitivity and specificity of the FAST exam in kids. And we, from that initial systematic review, suggested that the sensitivity for hemoperitoneum may be as high as 80%, which would be very good. The problem is those were probably very biased studies that had like expert users. They were either ultrasound technicians or mm. people that had done ultrasound fellowships, people that were very gung-ho ultrasonographers. It wasn't the everyday emergency physician doing the exam in most of those studies. Subsequent studies that have come out in the pediatric population where you've taken kind of every use, potential user have suggested that the sensitivity is not quite as good. And the other so, thing is that in that meta-analysis, Jim, correct if I'm wrong, but that included patients who were sick, who were, you know, were hypotensive, the full gamut of peds trauma patients. This study was just in hemodynamically stable. And I think that that's really important, and that's the vast majority of our pediatric trauma patients. And when you guys say intra-abdominal injury, how do you define that? Is this going back to your other article on clinically important intra-abdominal injury in kids? Is this just clinically important intra-abdominal injury, or is this all comers? We were looking at all intra-abdominal injuries for this particular study, and um, we were targeting a population that had about a 5% risk of intra-abdominal injury because we think that once you start getting higher than a 5% risk, that probably abdominal CT is warranted. So if you think the kid's risk is over 10%, 20%, 30%, that patient, regardless of what the FAST exam results are, probably needs a CT. But we think when you have a risk of 5% or less, that's where the FAST exam can help you put that child in such a low risk category that it's unlikely they will have an intra-abdominal injury that ever needs therapy. They might have a small liver injury that, that just gets observed for a couple of days and then goes home. But the likelihood that a kid that you don't think has an injury then has a negative FAST, has something that ever needs anything, is very small. And I'd add to that, in a previous study that uh, Jim and I did, this large observational PCARN study about intra-abdominal injury, we did a sub-analysis. Now, you have to keep in mind, that's, that was an observational study. In the study that Jim just presented here, this is a randomized trial, more the gold standard. But in that observational study, we found just what Jim said, is that when a clinician had low prior suspicion of injury, then did the FAST exam, they were less likely to get the CT than the clinician who didn't do the FAST exam, suggesting that, in fact, there is quite possibly an important role for the FAST 
in low-risk children to bring them even lower risk and to obviate the CT. But we just didn't see that manifest in the randomized trial. And for the purposes of this study, how did you define which patients were stable? We excluded high-risk patients, so we excluded those patients with GCS scores less than or equal to 8, so kind of the patient that you intubate. Um, We also excluded any that had hypotension, but you could be tachycardic and still be enrolled in the study, but if you had age-adjusted hypotension, we excluded you. And who performed these scans? Yeah, so then the exams were performed, since we're a teaching institution, were performed by either the resident or the faculty, and then interpreted by the resident and the faculty together, and then the decision was made by, the, by those individuals. And were these scans overread by anyone? So we had an a emergency medicine ultrasound expert subsequently go back and look at the ultrasounds and determine if uh, there was intraperitoneal fluid or not. And the agreement was surprisingly lower. What do you mean lower? Well, we anticipated the agreement would be quite good, but the agreement was, uh, uh, was moderate agreement. It just wasn't, um, it wasn't universal. Between the expert and those that had interpreted, yes. Exactly. So how did this change the practice for both of you guys? Well, I still am a believer. So I think that in those children that I am somewhat worried about, but not enough that I already know I need to get a CT that I will screen those patients with screening labs for intra-abdominal injury as well as perform a fast. And we'll use that as just an additional piece of information to make my decision while I'm observing that kid on whether or not they should get a CT. And I feel actually very similar to Jim in this regard. I consider the fast in the hemodynamically stable pediatric patient just like another good laboratory test. So like a liver function test, a urine, a hematocrit, I think the FAST is another piece of information. But we know, based on the sensitivity studies previously and what we've conducted, that it's not a perfectly sensitive test. It's just a good test. So I use it as well, but knowing that if I were to use it in isolation without anything else, I would be missing some children with injuries. And and importantly, I would add, and I think Jim would concur, but Jim, you can chime in on this one too, is that before we can really be conclusive about this study, even though, of course, we think it was an outstanding study done uh, (laughs) as a randomized trial here at UC Davis, any good study done at a single center probably needs to be replicated in a multi-center setting, particularly involving freestanding children's hospitals, where perhaps the decision-making and the thought process is a bit different than in a general trauma center like ours. And perhaps the results might be a little bit different. And to bring up the decision-making, I mean, in a trauma center, we should bring up that this decision to CT is not always the emergency physician, right? You work in a kind of collaborative environment, and perhaps the surgeons play a role in that decision too. Well, we thought about that before the study got started. So we collected the data on who wanted to get the CT scan. And so we thought that um, all these extra CTs were being ordered because of the trauma service and we just couldn't show that. So there are a fair amount of patients that the trauma service ordered it when we thought it was completely ridiculous, but that didn't change the results of the study much to our chagrin. Right, because it was, it was we specifically asked on the case report form, what were your indications for getting the CT scan? And one of the options was trauma team request. And so, as Jim's alluding to, we did a sub-analysis in which we excluded all the times, and it was about 50 times that the only indication for the CT was trauma team request, 
We excluded them, repeated the analysis, no difference. Are there any studies that show that it is helpful in the hemodynamically unstable patients like the one that we had together? Yeah, so we published a paper here a few years ago looking at ultrasound fast for hemodynamically unstable children, and every single patient that had hemoperitoneum that were that was unstable, um, the fast was positive. So it's a great screening tool. If your child uh, your child is hypotensive after trauma because they're bleeding into the abdomen, they've lost so much blood that the fast exam is going to be positive. And, and I would can say. It can tell you right then that that's the source of the bleeding. So it can help guide you what you're going to do next. In fact, I would say that in the hemodynamically unstable pediatric patient, it's standard of care to put the fast on as opposed to in the hemodynamically stable patient. Those of us who are peds trained and don't have that experience of having grown up doing an ultrasound on everybody and maybe don't feel quite as confident in our skills and probably my you know, inter-rater reliability is going to be even worse. Um, I'm speaking of myself here. And we're saying that it's not super helpful on the hemodynamically stable. How do I become confident in those that are hemodynamically unstable when it is the standard of care? Right. So uh, the, I would say the approach to that is, of course, one has to practice. And, and unfortunately, there are no, that I'm aware of, there are no great mannequins on which to practice so you have to practice on pediatric trauma patients. Yeah. Uh, so, in fact, I would say it's another reason why to do the ultrasound on the hemodynamically stable pediatric trauma patient is to make sure your skills are really good because when you really need to do it and it's absolutely indicated, you have to feel confident in your abilities. But I would put in a word of caution. I'd like to hear what Jim has to say about it and our ultrasonographic experts. The word of caution is if you put a probe on a child and you already have a low likelihood of having anything, you just have to be aware that if you do see something, you have to make sure it's real if you're going to get the CT scan because we don't want to be artificially or inappropriately obtaining CT scans because we're doing ultrasounds on patients where it might not be indicated. Like any test, there's always false positives and problems with specificity, etc. Well, it was interesting because our IRB was actually concerned that maybe doing the FAST exam would increase the CT rate because they would see things that aren't there and then they would order CTs that they weren't planning on. We didn't see that happen. There were a couple cases where they had planned not to do a CT that they then got a CT and uh, they found an intra-abdominal injury that ultimately went to laparotomy that they had not initially planned to get a, a CT in. So I think it does help. And, and to circle back to the case that we had, I think being proficient in the FAST exam made a big difference in that particular case because we expected to see fluid in the abdomen. Yeah. We were kind of surprised. We were looking really close. We couldn't find any. But as soon as we put the probe and looked at the heart, we knew something was had gone substantially wrong on that child and that the child needed to go to the OR as soon as possible. It drastically changed the outcome for that child. It would have been a completely surprising laparotomy. Correct. Is there anything else that you guys think is important that we haven't touched upon today from this study or your approach to FAST? What I would say is that, you know, we feel confident about the study. We feel it was, uh, you know, done in in a really rigorous manner, the randomized trial, the gold standard. But I think I can speak for Jim. We both feel that really before we rule out the routine use of FAST in the pediatric hemodynamically stable trauma patient, we really need to do this in a multi-center study uh, to validate these results. 
So while we're waiting for those results, keep putting the probe on the kids so that we can stay proficient, increase proficiency, and then when it's time for the hemodynamically unstable patients, we'll be able to identify injuries that wouldn't have been otherwise previously known potentially or expedite care, just like in our case where that girl had the surprising amount of blood around her heart instead of in her abdomen. Absolutely. That's the thing to do. And we're mobilizing our uh, efforts right now, putting together the multi-center trial. So in five or six years, hopefully we'll have some more results for you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but we'll be doing it in like, you know, 3D virtual reality <laughs> as opposed to podcast. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Thanks. So now joining us, we have Ken Kelly, who is the Ultrasound Fellowship Director at UC Davis and an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine, and he is actually the ultrasound expert on this paper. So Ken, thanks so much for coming on with us today. Good to be here. So Ken, you and Mike and I, we're all ultrasound trained. We use the FAST all the time. It's considered standard of care in our trauma patients. So were these results surprising to you? Yeah, they were. I We thought there would be a little bit higher sensitivity. So a little bit surprised by the results. As far as, you know, reasons behind those, probably multifactorial, to be honest with you. I think some of it might have to do with um, just the familiarity of faculty and residents with doing the FAST exam in the pediatric emergency department. I'd really like to try to tease out some of the reasons why you know, they called it negative, whoever's doing the scan, or they called it positive. But then when you overread it, you came up with a different result. So did you see any pattern? Like, were there common things people missed, common things they called false positives on? I would say, you know, in, in kind of general terms, kind of looking back, and, and we, we went back and after we kind of, the paper had been written up and whatnot, I was just curious. I went back and looked at a lot of the studies. And I think there were quite a few studies that were, that were called adequate that in retrospect had some inadequacy to them. So there were some studies that were read as CT, having uh, free fluid within the peritoneal cavity, that even on ultrasound review, after we knew the answer, still did not have any evidence of free fluid. There were some studies that were technically limited in regards to, you know, for example, maybe they didn't see the free edge of the liver uh, in the same plane as the kidney. And so even though that was called negative, the CT showed that it did have free fluid. Um, And then there was just, you know, simple little things. I think within... If you want to get a little bit technical for pediatric patients within the pelvis, I, I've been trying to kind of figure out with the anatomy what it is, but there's just an increase in the amount of, I don't know if it's fascial plans or whatever, but there just seems to be a little bit more hyperechoic, hypoechoic, anechoic layers that you don't see as much in the adults. And I, I, like that has never been described in the literature. It's just my kind of gestalt of having looked at all these these uh, scans week after week, um, that they're just it's a, a little bit more chance for error, I guess. So, what about training in peds fast? Julia brought that up as a pediatrician, and I know in the study some of the scans may have been done by residents. But do you think that's something we need to improve in general? Maybe pediatricians aren't doing or interpreting as many fasts. Yeah, I, I think that was probably a big component. We did a prior to the study, there was a um, a training period where any attending who worked over in the pediatric ED had to do a certain amount of exams and just kind of show proficiency. You know, that was attendings. But sometimes a resident will be over in the pediatric department 
this is an emergency medicine resident, and it could be an intern or a younger resident that might not have as much experience, and they would be the one performing the FAST exam. So I think there were some issues related to training. I also think that just looking at our numbers of pediatric FAST exams that are done, you could tell that after the study, it, it dropped off significantly. So, you know, it was something that was being done during the study, but then after the study, and this was even before the results came out, you know, the amount of patients who were undergoing a FAST exam in the pediatric department definitely went down. So in practice, we just don't do it as much. Yes, absolutely. So getting away from the study a little bit, in general, do you think there are ways we could improve the PEDS FAST? Anything that should be added or changed to make it more helpful? I think the FAST exam in general, because of the nature of its name, the FAST exam, gets taught as something that's very easy and fast to do. And I think there's definitely some nuances to it. And people sometimes need to spend a little more more time ensuring that they're getting adequate windows, making sure that in the right quadrant, you know, they're seeing the diaphragm, they're getting down to the liver tip in the same plan as the kidney, in the subcubic window that there's uh, scanning in two orthogonal, orthogonal planes, things like that. Just being very consistent in your FAST exam and making sure you're interrogating all the necessary anatomy. Given the results of the study, how are you going to approach the trauma patient, pediatric trauma patient now? Are you going to use FAST in all the patients, just the unstable ones? Yeah, I mean, and kind of what uh, Nate and Jim had mentioned, um, ultrasound, like most things in medicine, is operator dependent. And the only way you're going to get better at it is to scan and to do something repeatedly. So unstable patients, uh, stable patients, I think providers should do the FAST exam. I think taking the results of this study into context, you have to kind of know what your test characteristics are. But at the end of the day, I think making that part of your practice is going to make it, um, is going to really just uh, help you when that you do have that unstable patient. Sarah, what do you do? Do you fast all of your peds trauma patients? How is this different from adults for you? Yeah, I mean, I do work in the PDCD, and I do routinely scan most of my trauma patients, anybody that I'm concerned about blunt abdominal trauma. And I think, obviously, I'm more comfortable with the FAST exam. I use it a lot, but I would really encourage pediatricians to work on this to make sure that they know how to do a good FAST exam and how to interpret it, because I do think that it's really useful. We'll see what the research shows in the future. Yeah. So one issue that came up in the paper was that there were a lot of negative FAST exams and we were still ordering CTs. So it wasn't showing a change in management. Let's say we had a faculty that was 100% fellowship trained in ultrasound. Would we be ordering fewer CT scans? I think we would. I think it's just familiarity and kind of confidence in your exam. I think that plays a, a huge part in it. Ken, any final thoughts about PEDS FAST that you want to share with us? I think the only thing I would, I would mention is, you know, with adults, there's variation in body habitus. I think with pediatrics, it's more extreme, you know, from your teenagers to your infants. And I think it's really important to make sure your exam settings are appropriate, your depth is appropriate, just machine functions are appropriate. Yeah, I think that's good guidance and a good note to end on. So, Ken, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. Glad to be here. Pulse check. You know, Sarah, that case that we discussed at the beginning really made an impression on me. It's one of the few cases where the FAST exam made a tangible difference on one of my pediatric patients. 
But that was a hemodynamically unstable child. And the article that we just discussed showed us that in the hemodynamically stable patient, the FAST is not changing outcomes, at least at our site. It will be interesting to see more literature come out, but the article itself is not encouraging me to get out there and do more FAST exams. Yeah, and I totally get that. What I would say just from my experience is there's so much muscle memory involved and just pattern recognition. And the more that you do this, the better you will get, the more it will be kind of second nature, the faster you will get, the easier it'll be to integrate into your practice. And, you know, to me, it it may not make a difference for a lot of these patients, but when it does make a difference for that one patient, like the case that we had, it's huge. I mean, that potentially saved that kid's life. Yeah. No, I can't argue with that. It definitely was a big game changer. So for you guys who are listening, we would love it if you could join our conversation on social media at Impulse Podcast. That's on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on the web at ucdavisem.com. Please subscribe and rate us. This is how others find out about our podcast. And thanks, as always, to the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine for supporting this podcast. And thanks to Orlando Magana at OM Audio Productions for helping us sound not too stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned. We've got some really great stuff coming up. I am super excited about concussion. We've got transgender care wellness, DKA, tons of stuff you're going to love to hear about. So join us again next month.